0: Section 85 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 5 In the Interval which separates six inches from two feet, there is room to lodge death. Gilliatt replaced the box in the belt and put the belt in the pocket of his trousers. He left the skeleton to the crabs, with the dead octopus beside it. While Gilead had been engaged with the octopus and the skeleton, the rising tide had flooded the entrance to the passage. Gilead could get out only by diving under the arch. He managed it without difficulty. He knew the exit, and he was a master of these gymnastics of the sea. The reader has had a view of the drama which had taken place six weeks before. One monster had seized another. The octopus had caught Clibain. This had been, in the inexorable gloom, what might almost be called the encounter of hypocrisies. At the bottom of the abyss, these two existences, made up of waiting and of shadows, had come into violent collision, and one, which was the beast, had executed the other, which was the soul. Sinister justice. The crab feeds on carrion, the octopus feeds on crabs the octopus arrests in its passage any swimming animal a dog or a man if it can drinks his blood and leaves the dead body at the bottom of the water crabs are the necrophagous beetles of the sea decaying flesh attracts them they come they eat the corpse the octopus eats them dead things disappear in the crab the crab disappears in the octopus we have already pointed out this law. Clubin had served the octopus as bait. The octopus had held him down and drowned him. The crabs had devoured him. Some wave had thrust him into the cave, at the bottom of whose niche Gilliatt had found him. Gilliatt retraced his steps, fumbling among the rocks in search of sea urchins and whelks, as he no longer desired any crabs it would have seemed to him as though he were devouring human flesh. Moreover, his only thought was to sup as well as possible before setting out. Henceforth nothing detained him. Great tempests are always followed by a calm, which sometimes lasts many days. No danger now existed on the side of the sea. Gilliatt was resolved to set out on the morrow. It was important to keep the barricade between the Douvres in place during the night, because of the tide, but Gilliatt intended to remove this barrier at daybreak to push the boat clear of the Douvres and to set sail for St. Samson. The light breeze which was blowing from the southwest was precisely the wind which he needed. The first quarter of the May moon was beginning. The days were long. When Gilliatt, having finished his prowling among the rocks and almost satisfied his appetite, returned to the gap between the Douvres where his boat lay, the sun had set. The twilight was livid with that half-moonlight which may be called the light of the crescent. The tide had attained its height, and was beginning to ebb again. The smoke-stack of the engine, rising upright above the paunch, had been covered by the foam of the tempest with a layer of salt, which shone white in the moonlight. This reminded Gilliatt that the squall had thrown a great deal of rainwater and sea-water into his boat and that if he wished to set out on the morrow, he must bail out the paunch. He had noticed, when he quitted the boat to go in pursuit of crabs, that there were about six inches of water in the hold. His bailing scoop would be sufficient to throw out this water. On reaching the boat, Gilliatt gave a start of terror. There were nearly two feet of water in the boat. A formidable fact, the boat was leaking. It had gradually filled during Gilead's absence. Loaded as it was, twenty inches of water was a dangerous addition. A little more, and it would sink. If Gilead had returned one hour later, he would probably have found only the mast and smokestack out of water. Not a moment could be spared for deliberation. He must find a leak, stop it up, then empty the boat, or at least relieve it, the sumps of the Durand had been lost in the shipwreck. Gilliatt was reduced to the bailing scoop of the paunch. He must find the leak first of all. That was the most urgent point. Gilliatt set to work instantly, without even giving himself time to dress again, all shivering as he was. He was no longer conscious of either hunger or cold. The boat continued to fill. Fortunately there was no wind. The slightest swell would have sunk it. The moon set piliat searched for a long time groping bent half submerged in the water at last he discovered the injury during the storm at the critical moment when the paunch had twisted round the strong bark had come somewhat violently in contact with the rocks one of the projections of the little had made a fracture in the hull on the starboard side this leak was vexatiously one might say treacherously, situated near the joints of two riders, and this, together with the confusion of the storm, had prevented Gilliatt's perceiving the injury in his obscure and rapid survey at the height of the tempest. The fracture had this alarming feature, that it was large, and this reassuring feature that, although submerged for the moment by the inward increase of water, it was above the waterline. At the instant when the crack had opened the waves had been rudely shaken in the strait, and there was no longer any smooth water. The water had dashed through the breach into the boat. The boat, beneath this extra load, had settled several inches, and even after the waves had subsided the weight of the water which had filtered in by raising the water line had kept the leak under water. Hence the imminence of the danger water had increased from six inches to twenty. But if the leak could be stopped, the boat could be bailed out, the bark once emptied, it would rise once more to its normal water line, the fracture would be out of the water and thus dry, repair would be easy, or at least possible. Gilliatt, as we have already said, still had his carpenter's tools in fairly good condition. But what uncertainty before reaching that point! What perils! What evil chances! Gilead heard the water inexorably gushing in, a shock, and all would sink. What wretchedness! Perhaps it was already too late. Gilead blamed himself bitterly. He should have perceived the injury at once. The six inches of water in the hold should have warned him. He had been stupid to attribute those six inches to the rain and foam. He reproached himself for having slept, for having eaten. He almost reproached himself with the tempest and the night. All was his fault. These harsh self-reproaches were uttered as he went to and fro about his work, and did not prevent his giving it careful attention. The leak was found, that was the first step. To stop it was the second. Nothing more could be done for the moment. Carpentering cannot be done under water one favorable circumstance was that the break in the hull had taken place in the space comprised between the two chains which stayed the smokestack on the starboard the stuffing could be fastened to these chains meanwhile the water was gaining the depth was now over two feet the water rose above gilliatt's knees end of chapter five in the interval which separates six inches from two feet There is room to lodge death.